Sinn. Hi everybody, welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine. I'm Dr. Kara Fitzgerald. Today it's my honor to be speaking with Dr. Keith McCormick, who has been doing just really incredible work around osteoporosis. Um, and I, I think he really knows better than anybody in the world of integrative medicine how to address this uh, from a functional perspective. So expect to get some really good user-friendly Monday morning pearls today. And if you're a individual suffering with osteoporosis or osteopenia today, you'll have some great take-homes uh, as well. You can either implement yourself or talk to your physician about. Dr. McCormick is, board, is a board-certified chiropractor in the state of Massachusetts, Colorado, and California. He's been in clinical practice since 1992. In addition to a general practice, Dr. McCormick is board-certified in sports chiropractic is a board-certified sports chiropractic physician and is a member of the University of Massachusetts Sports Medicine Department. Dr. McCormick specializes in nutritional management of patients with bone fragility and is the author of The Whole Body Approach to Osteoporosis. This is a great resource for clinicians and patients alike, this book, The Whole Body Approach to Osteoporosis. Um, I suggest that you check it out if you haven't gotten it. Uh, in 2011, Dr. McCormick founded OsteoNaturals, a company dedicated to providing information and quality nutrition products to individuals with bone loss. Again, this is a great company. Uh, his professional memberships include the American Society for Bone and Mineral Research, the International Bone and Mineral Society, and the American Chiropractic Association. Dr. McCormick earned his bachelor's in human biology at Stanford and his doctorate at National College of Chiropractic. In addition to his chiropractic practice, Dr. McCormick is an avid athlete competing in Ironman triathlons and was a member of the 1976 U.S. Olympic team in the sport of modern pentathlon. Keith, it is great to have you on the podcast today. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for inviting me, Kara. Good to be here. And I know you're recovering from your uh, Ironman of, what, last week. Uh, so again, I'm glad you're here, even in recovery mode. Can you? Uh, yeah. Pretty good, though. <laughs> good. So give me a little bit of your background on how you came to focus in, uh, in bone loss in your practice. Well, I, I've been an athlete all my life, and I've been, uh, even when I was 45, I was training pretty hard, and one day I was doing a track workout, and I just had a lot of hip pain, and uh, one thing led to another, and Within three or four days, I'd had a couple uh, tests done, and I found out I had really severe osteoporosis and um, had some microfractures in my hip. And I, over the next few months, I saw five endocrinologists. They all just wanted to put me on bisphosphonates and uh, thiazide diuretics. And I said, that's not what I wanted to do. And at that point, I really, I was 45 years old. I didn't know anything about osteoporosis except that elderly women get it, and uh, that was in that you're supposed to drink milk, and so uh, I didn't want to just take bisphosphonates, and so I um, kind of just immersed myself in the study of osteoporosis and uh, tried to figure out what my problem w was, and then after I think I did that, I decided to write a book about it so I could help other people, and now I do consults on patients with osteoporosis from all over the world, really. So it's been a lot of fun and I, hopefully a lot of help to people. And that's kind of the story. Yeah, thanks. Thanks but for sharing it. I, 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 I broke a lot of bones over a period of five years, and now I don't break anymore. And I can do Ironmans again. And it's, uh, it's, it was actually a very good learning experience. And it's always good to have a little brush with um, your immortality and then come back from it. Right, right. I know you've learned a lot. I mean, you, I've known you for years, and we've dialogued extensively on this. I've learned so much from you. So I know in addition to treating patients, you're a great educator for professionals. I mean, we, we see people with osteo, oste bone loss to one degree or another in our practices all the time. Can you just walk us through basically, you know, the underlying mechanism of action with regard to osteoporosis? And throw, well, in, there, any, there. Th throw in any genetic... Uh, thoughts you have there, around there? Well, there? There are 
there are so many genetic inputs to, to this. Um, uh, and the, the problem is there's so many, and there's so many that uh, they really can't pinpoint as far as direct, you know, bone loss, but it's related to bone loss. So, um, yes, there's a huge genetic components, and when you're when you're trying to figure out what's going on with this person or that person for bone bone loss, you do have to have that in the back of your mind that it's um, you can do everything in right, and the person still has bone loss, mm-hmm. and um, it, it can be frustrating at times. But uh, the basic um, reason for bone loss is a uncoordinated bone remodeling process. So the osteoblasts have to form bone, and they actually tell the osteoclast through uh, various uh, um, signaling molecules, especially what's one called rankle, which mm-hmm. is receptor for activated nuclear factor kappa B ligand, and that is a signaling mechanism to the osteoclast to ramp up their activity because you think, why would the osteoblast, the form bone, and, the oste- and tell the osteoclast to break down bone? But the reason why is because we're trying to, the, the body's constantly trying to get rid of microfractures. If microfractures increase over time, the, the whole skeleton gets weaker. And so the, the body is always trying to remodel and renew the skeleton. And so the, the interaction between the osteoblast and the osteoclast is vital. And that, is, that uh, interaction breaks down and osteoclastic activity ramps up. And osteoblastic activity naturally goes down as a person gets older. And you think, well, why, doesn't oste- why don't osteoclasts naturally get uh, tired and, and, and mm-hmm. decrease over time. The reason why is because, and the, the key to this whole thing is, what happens as a person gets older? Well, they get less anabolic, they get more catabolic, they get more inflammatory problems, they get more inflammatory cytokines, interleukin-1, interleukin-6, tumor necrosis factor, things like that. And that is what spurs on these osteoclasts. And osteoclasts actually get to be almost like these... Um, a burned-out light bulb. There, there, there. Um, when there's this background inflammation happening, their lifespan might be shorter, but they become much more aggressive. The light bulb gets really, really bright before it gets burned out, and then it burns out. But in the meantime, it's bright, and then it burns out. And the same thing with these osteoclasts. They get very aggressive, even though their lifespan might be a tinge smaller, uh, shorter. They uh, do start breaking down bone more. Wow, that's okay. Thank you so much. That's a, a, a great summary of what's happening at the molecular level. And um, I just wanted to reiterate that there's no genes that are really jumping out at you. It's this fundamental mechanism that you're thinking about. Well, there's, well, there's you know, genetic uh, issues for vitamin D. Right. There's genetic issues for, um, I mean... It, yeah, I got it. I can't, there's just a lot. I there's got it. so many that are involved, and, and what are we going to do about it? I'm not sure. You right. know? Um, we can uh, improve, you know, enzymatic activity, improve uh, transcription activity as, as far as making sure we don't have um, issues there, but, but really it's, it's, it's we don't, we don't, there's nothing to pinpoint that, that we can really change, I think. Okay, okay, I Except hear you. the whole body function can. So taking, um, just taking a full functional approach where you're looking at the, pers- the, the whole being and correcting uh, the imbalances that you identify, um, that's going to be a piece of the puzzle regardless of the underlying cause. It, it, the reason why is because everything is involved. Yeah. I mean, you have every single uh, organ is involved. You, you think of the bones as just being this... Um, by themselves, but they're not. Uh, you know, the parathyroid, the thyroid is involved, the pancreas is involved, the testicles, the the ovaries, the the gut is huge. Mm-hmm. I mean, the gut is. If if you have gut dysfunction, you're going to have increased uh, inflammation. You're going to have um, uh, 
production of, of pro-inflammatory cytokines. You're going to have production of uh, more NF-kappa B in all the cells. Um, like I said, I, I don't think you could mention an organ that is not involved in this. So I just, so, so um, Rankle is a fundamental player, this receptor-activated nuclear cap, um, NF-kappa B. This is, is this, is, this is the fundamental link to um, turning on the inflammatory cytokines that then really direct the, or, or vice versa, the cytokines turn on Rankle, and then Rankle cranks up the osteoclasts. Uh, right. th that's the so, fun, so yeah. The, yes, so the osteoclasts naturally produce Rankle, mm -hmm. but so do T cells. And, and when the immune system is offset and we have increased T cell production, we have increased rankle production, and what happens is they um, interfere with the monocyte macrophage uh, 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 transformation um, from the monocyte macrophages to the um, cytokines, to the um, uh, osteoclast. So we have hematopoietic stem cells and we have mesenchymal stem cells. They're the two. There's actually three stem cells essentially within bone marrow, but those are the two main ones that we're talking about. The hematopoietic stem cells begat um, uh, the osteoclast. The mesenchymals uh, uh, produce the uh, osteoblasts. What happens is they're talking to each other all the time uh, within these stem cell uh, lineages. So we have the um, people don't think of osteoclasts as being white blood cells, but essentially they are. And um, if you look at what a white blood cell does, it eats up uh, bacteria, eats up viruses, and mm -hmm. gets rid of it. Mm -hmm. And what do osteoclasts do? They eat up bone to get rid of microfractures. And so they really um, essentially doing similar things, and they they are directed by similar signaling molecules. And when the um, when the hematopoietic stem cells are interfered with, you have a like it's a, like the switch-like mechanism that occurs, and you instead of uh, to the monocyte macrophage cell lineage, and so what happens is you end up getting a switch that goes away from the monocyte macrophage production and more towards the osteoclastic production. And that's what happens when you have a huge amount of rankle being produced by T cells. T cells are, this, as you know, like the, the generals of the, of the white blood cells of the immune system. And so they really dictate what's going on. So when there's chronic inflammatory issues from the gut or wherever, they're going to be producing uh, more rankle. And that's what flips the switch. And the same thing happens with the... Um, with the mesenchymal stem cells, uh, switch can happen there too, and, and the same thing can occur there. When we have more pro-inflammatory cytokines being produced, instead of the mesenchymal stem cells producing osteoblasts, mm -hmm. they end up producing more fat. And so if you look at a person's uh, CBC, you think, well, what's, what's a CBC going to tell me on a person with osteoporosis? Look at that CBC and look at their red blood cell count. You're going to see red blood cell counts almost, with a person with severe osteoporosis, you're almost always going to see it below 4.0. The reason why is because these people, these osteoporotic, severely osteoporotic people, have a lot of fat in their bone marrow. Mm. Why? Because that rankle, that uh, interleukin 1, interleukin 6, tumor cross factor, that has all flipped that switch from osteoblastic production to adipocyte production. And so we have this huge amount of fat, fat within the bone marrow. And then that fat crowds out the hematopoietic stem cells, and that's why the person ha ends up having less red blood cell production. Jeez, thank you so much. That's such a great um, outline of the underlying pathophysiology. I appreciate it. So really stoking inflammation from any part of the body. You know, you get the fundamental cytokines upregulated like interleukin-6, tumor necrosis factor alpha, interleukin-1, and then you turn on T-cell production. T-cells start cranking out the rankle and just turning on the movement towards 
osteoclast activity as well as uh, increased adiposity in the deposited in the bone marrow. Is that a good summary? Yeah. Okay. That's perfect summary. Okay. Okay. That's great. That's extremely useful. So I want to jump over to talking about what I've seen in my practice. Now, I, I, have, I do routinely quite well when osteoporosis is a comorbidity. So, um, in fact, in the case study book that I authored in 2011, I wrote about a, a, a rheumatoid arthritis patient we addressed, who also had um, osteoporosis. We addressed the rheumatoid arthritis, um, you know, just really got her, into, uh, got her into balance and wellness, antibodies cleared, et cetera. And her, you know, with, with little effort, her bone density improved, really. We just quenched the inflammation, bone density bounced back. She was no longer, you know, osteoporotic as defined by T-score. Um, she was osteopenic at the, at, at the point of the end of the case study. So it was relatively straight, straightforward. I introduced a few you know, combination bone nutrients, but not, not a lot. In fact, this woman never exercised despite my uh, uh, repeated pleas with her, and we were still able to improve her bone density by quenching inflammation. On the other end of the, the spectrum, though, and I think you fall into this category personally, are those people who present primarily with osteoporosis. And it's a different can of worms. It's much more challenging to treat these two pictures. Uh, can you talk about that? Yeah, I, I think you're right, and 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 I think on. I mean, it goes back and forth. But for my book, if it, my book is called the whole body approach to osteoporosis, you could say the whole body approach to Alzheimer's. You could say the whole body approach to heart disease, to diabetes. I, I don't think it really matters. I think that you. Uh, like you did with this patient, you approach that person by improving their her body and her bone density happened to improve. Mm-hmm. I think what we all fall into is this old thing of, oh, osteoporosis is bone loss. What are bones made of? Well, bones are made of calcium. Well, then the person needs calcium. It's, it's, it, that is so simplistic and wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, like you said, you didn't even have this person exercise. They probably weren't even taking tons of calcium, and they still got better in their, their bone density. And the reason yes. why is because what's more important than, than calcium is try to, to improve that speaking between the osteoclast and the osteoblast. That's what's more important, much more important than giving a person calcium and um so, so okay that that addressed that but the and your other point in that osteoporosis as the primary yes is i think more difficult and the reason why is because we have all this genetic stuff going on okay. we have genetic markers for for collagen we have for vitamin d for you know there's so many things that are happening and a person can have a negative 2.5 and they're they're falling apart, and another person with negative two point five, and they're fine. And the reason why is because we have bone quality and bone quantity, and the only thing we can really measure at this point is bone quantity. Right. So bone quantity with the T scores is fine, but really, I think in thirty years, whenever we're a lot smarter, we're going to be able to measure bone quality, and that's going to be so much more. Uh, beneficial than measuring quantity because the the, the quantity is, is just minimally related to a person's fracture risk. Uh, I mean, it's a huge discrepancy. Discrepancy, like I said, you know, one person with negative two point five will fracture, another person with negative four point oh or four point five, and they don't fracture. Yeah. I mean, they're going to fracture pretty soon. I'll, I'll tell you that. But but um, you know, they might get to negative. 5.0 before they fracture. Okay. Uh, but the quality, how do you measure that? And um, when you have a, pri- a person with just osteoporosis um, and they don't have the other disease issues yet, um, I do think it is harder. But I do think that you need to address them as though they may get Alzheimer's, they may get diabetes, they may get these other things, and then you treat it that way. Got it. So you're still going in with this, you know, foundational total body approach. We're going to talk, um, and we're going to go back to that in just a second, but I wanted to just nail you down on the labs. Um, quality versus quantity, and, you know, you out, and the, and the limitations of, of, of DEXA and T-score. Um, so how are you 
getting an idea around uh, quality, A, and B, talk, talk to me about the, you know, the bone resorption markers that you use routinely. So both things. How do, how do you get an idea around quality and um, urine bone resorption markers, which I think are a very extremely useful yeah. tool? Yeah. Well, I mean, for example, that red blood cell thing, and I look at a lot of different indices. I look at uh, mean platelet volume. If that's high, they have an inflammatory going on. They look at lots of little things like that. And, and if, if they have a negative, uh, well, you know, probably a negative 3.0 for the spine is kind of my tipping point, whether I get a little nervous about a person or something. I don't get nervous at negative 2.5 usually. And usually at negative 3.0, I'm still not that nervous about them as far as saying, listen, we got to do a drug here. But, you know, negative 3.5, I, I start getting more nervous. But I, I look at lots of other indices. And if if this person is really unhealthy and they have a negative 3.0 and their MPV is high and their red blood cells are low and they have digestive issues and they have blah, 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 you know, different things, then I start saying, okay, this person is really genuinely <laughs> unhealthy. And it's not just that they're... Um, you know, they were born with, uh, you know, lower density. I mean, you, you have a lot of women that are 110 pounds and they have a negative 3.0, and they're not going to fracture. You know, right. they just have small, smaller bone, bone uh, uh, volume. And, um, I mean, they may fracture, but I shouldn't say they're not going to, but, but the chances of it are, are less, I think. Especially uh, if... The other parameters, obviously, you're looking at those, and they're dialed in, so they're not an inflamed yeah, individual. And that's right. Yeah, yeah. And they just they just have low bone density, and to, right. to get them all upset and say, "Oh, you have to go on a bisphosphonate," uh, that's really criminal in my case. And and they'll do that with with people with negative 2.0 with just osteopenia. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've seen you know little little hundred hundred pound women with a negative 2.0 being put at age, you know, 50, being put on a bisphosphonate. Oh, that, <laughs> I cringe when I, when I see that, you know. Right. Um, and speaking of bone resorption markers, a lot of these people, for example, that 100-pound woman who turns 50, and that's, and that's the people that I see in my practice mostly. They're 50-year-old women because when they turn uh, at menopause or they turn 50, they're their doctor says, okay, time to get a bone density. And then what happens is if the bone density comes back negative 2.0 or negative 2.5, which is osteoporosis, then they're automatically or pretty much oftentimes automatically put on a bisphosphonate. And bone resorption markers aren't done for a baseline. Right. And to me that is terrible because um, if you get an NTX, it's that let's look at NT, for NT-lipeptide. Let's, it's, a, it's a urine marker for, for um, bone resorption. So what happens on these, there's three essentially basic bone resorption markers. There's NT-lipeptide, C-T-lipeptide, and deoxyperidinoline. Um, NTX is typically urine. CTX is typically uh, blood, but you can, uh, they can actually get them, uh, NTX now from blood. But... Um, uh, and then there's deoxyperidinoline, which is urine, and they're all pretty, uh, pretty good, and, and all pretty bad at the same time. Mm-hmm. They they uh, fluctuate uh, throughout the day, so it's really important to, uh, especially the NTX and the DPD. It's really important to do them at the same time each day. Um, and is and there a time? Person, is there a time you recommend? Well, well you should do, do them second morning urine because um, what happens is. The, uh, you're having a lot of metabolic processes going on during the night, and, um, and then it's, so it's just good to, to look at it at the same time. So, so we don't want that first urine, and we want that second one. So if a person goes to, uh, gets up at 6.30, they should, they should pee, and then they should go at 8.30 or so and pee again mm-hmm. at, the, at the lab, and that's the urine we want. Um, it's it's uh, it, it, the you know, let's 
talk really quick about NTX because it, I, I, that's what I use mostly. I sometimes I use CTX and once in a while I use DPD, but um, I use, mostly use NTX. And, it, and the better way to go, the best way to go is a 24-hour urine uh, NTX. That's a more stable one. Good. You don't have to worry about the, the change throughout the day. But yeah. typically I use a second morning. And the uh, I think the reference range is something like 15 to 65, which is totally ludicrous. Uh, <laughs> if you wouldn't want somebody at 15 because that's saying that they have virtually no osteoclastic activity. Right. You don't want them at 15. We're shutting them. And when you take a bisphosphonate, it can get down to 20 or 15, which is, to me, dangerous. You would not want to keep a person on a bisphosphonate if they're down to 15 because now we're not having any bone remodeling. We're not having any turnover of bone. And they're the people who I think are, are much more have a chance of atypical uh, femur fractures or uh, osteonecrosis of the jaw development. So uh, a person shouldn't be on a bisphosphonate if, if their NTX is down to 15. And a lot of people, a lot of doctors don't retest NTXs. When a person, before a person starts starts a, a bisphosphonate, starts a medication, they need to be tested uh, to get a baseline. And while they're being treated with a bisphosphonate, they need to be, you know, every six months have an NTX or CTX done again, just to make sure they're not getting too low. Right. So, so the reference range of 15 to 65, you don't want somebody at 60. If they have a 65, it's way too high. It should be below probably 45. So between 30 and 45 is the best for NTX. Um, uh, what I do in, in, in my patients is I always get the NTX, sometimes CTX, whatever, but I always get the bone resorption marker. I look at it and I say, okay, you have 100 for your NTX. We are going to get this down below 50 within four months, and if we don't, and depending on how bad their, their uh, bone density is, if we don't get it down below 50 within four months of just doing nutrition, and, and typically, almost always I do, uh, mm -hmm. but if we don't, then I say we're going to go on a bisphosphonate. And that's especially if a person is like a negative you know, 3.5. If they are a negative 4.0, negative 4.2, and they've fractured, I'm, I'm putting them on a bisphosphonate or Forteo right away. I'm going to still do all my nutrition with them, but I'm going to get them on a drug right away because I don't want them fracturing and anymore. And nutrition works, but it's a little slower. Right. And I want to get these people out of trouble as fast as we can. And if you do a bisphosphonate short-term, mm -hmm. they're not going to hurt them. Uh, Forteo is a great drug. It, it gives them a cushion. It's the only drug out there that, that, um, that uh, actually builds bone tissue. And, um, and then if you do Forteo with them, you always back it up with six months to a year of a bisphosphonate. But then you pull them off of the bisphosphonate, and then you just do nutrition. But then mm -hmm. you're still constantly monitoring that bone resorption marker. Every six months, every four to six months, you're doing that NTX or CTX again. If it gets up to a dangerous level, maybe you'll have to throw them back on a bisphosphonate for, for six months or something like that. Mm -hmm. But almost always, you should be able to bring that person. Like for, for me personally, my NTX, this is 15 years ago, my NTX was like 125 or something. And I brought it down to 50, well, 48 or 50, pretty consistently just below 50 with just nutrition. Mm -hmm. So you, you can do it. And, um, I mean, but then you have to monitor it and make sure it stays down. Right. Oh, that's just incredibly useful information. Thank you so much, Keith. Um, let's see. I, well, let's start talking about what you're doing nutritionally. Uh, maybe some basic protocols for general bone health plus a little bit of time on that, but really let's dive into the nitty-gritty with somebody who's got, you know, frank osteoporosis greater than negative 2.5, even some of the more severe folks you see. Well, I mean, first thing, of course, you, you make sure they're, they're, they're good on their vitamin D. I like somebody between at least minimal is 35 nanograms per ml, but I like them up at 50 or 60, and a lot of people... You know, try to shoot for 80. I don't think you need to get 80 nanograms per ml. I think 60 is fine. I don't think you get any more benefit from it. Uh, but, you know, you test. And one thing you don't want to do is just say, oh, I'm going to give that person 2,000 IUs of vitamin D because many people don't absorb 
fat, you know. Right. And so they um, they they might have to be on 5,000 IUs a day. Mm-hmm. Uh, but just test and check it out. And, and so until you know that they're always remaining throughout the winter months too. So we up here in New England, we don't have any any good sun and, and deep production in the winter time. So so the good time to test for vitamin D is in March or April, because you want to make sure that what doesn't happen is that through the winter they get down to 25 nanograms per mL, and then they, you know they're in the sun a little bit more in the summer, and then they get up to 45. And so so you mistakenly. Uh, test them in, in July, and there are 45, and you say, oh, they're fine. I don't need to test them again. No, you need to test them again in March. Make sure that they're holding that 45 throughout the year because sometimes people need to take five to 7,000 IUs a, a day during the winter, and then they can drop it down to 2,000 in the summer. Mm-hmm. But just make sure they're always staying, you know, probably around 40 to 50 at least through the, through the winter months. Um, uh, you can test for vitamin K. Uh, Medmetrics has the, um, the the K test for the carboxylate osteocalcin. So that's not a bad test if you if you don't know how their fat um, absorption is. I think that um, Vermeer did most of the studies on vitamin K, mm-hmm. and he found that the max you really need for full osteocalcin. Uh, carboxylation is about 500 micro between 200 and 500 micrograms of of K2. So I use I use some uh, K2 MK4 uh, K7, but mostly I think it's MK4 that's the most important. So like in my my OsteoStim product, I have like 700 micrograms of of a mixture between uh, the K2 MK4 plus uh, 50 micrograms of the of the MK7, and that's Really, all you need for for good carboxylation of the osteocalcin. Okay. One of the things people one of the things people don't realize about osteocalcin is, and, and 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 they a lot of people have read the Japanese studies where right. they use forty five milligrams. Yeah. And I think that's kind of been a little bit refuted by a, a recent study, but but you know this that's a, to me it's a pharmacological dose. And we don't really, and where they came up with the 45 milligrams, I'm not sure, uh, as far as the testing. But, you know, why didn't they pick 40? Why didn't they pick 50? Why didn't they pick 30? I don't know. But, you know, they came up with the 45, and they found out there was increased bone density. So now everybody got on the bandwagon and said, okay, let's do 45 milligrams of, of K. But we don't know that that, that K might overcarboxylate osteocalcin. Mm. And, and what's important for... Um, testosterone production is uh, under carboxylated osteocalcin. Oh, that's so, fascinating. Uh, and and for pancreatic function, you also need a, a balance between osteo, uh, osteocalcin being carboxylated and under carboxylated. So, wow. so when you start forcing the body to do things that maybe aren't natural, i.e. 45 milligrams of K, you might be pissing around with their energy produ- uh, energy uh, balance as far as pancreatic and, and um, insulin production and testosterone production. So nice. to me, let's just do what Vermeer said in, when he did the studies and he found out that, you know, pretty good full uh, carboxylation is, is all you need for bone health, and that's a 500 micrograms. Thank you. Um, so that's my... Vitamin K. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That was a question on the list. I'm really glad you covered that because I know a lot of clinicians are familiar with the Japanese research and are going with 45 milligrams, and it's um, it, myself included. And it's you know, and and I I love the rationale, and I'd I'd like to you know if you know the citation for the study, the recent study you just mentioned, I'd like to. Uh, to, yeah, to get it. Yeah, I, I, I wanted to look that up and then I forgot to. Okay. But I'm almost positive within the last year or two years, something came out that showed the 45 milligrams didn't have, and I'm not sure how many people were in the study, but I'm almost positive that, that came up that, oh, it didn't show increase in bone density. All right. But we can so certainly. How many people were in it? We can definitely look at well. We can look at Vermer's work that you just you, you just mentioned and saturating right. osteocalcin at five hundred micrograms right. with K two. Right. Um, okay. Right. All right. So keep going with your protocol. Uh, um, <laughs> then 
I use, uh, so we get the D and the K out of the way. I mean, I, I make sure they're taking um, uh, calcium, magnesium. I, I think people really should try to get a lot of their calcium from their diet. I think if you have a good diet with high in vegetables, and even if you don't have dairy, you, you can get, you know, 500, 600, 700 milligrams of calcium. So then you should uh, supplement them with between five and 800 milligrams of calcium, a good form of calcium, um, calcium malate, chelate, calcium glycinate, something like that. Just try to stay away from, I think, calcium carbonate. For younger people, calcium carbonate's okay, I think, but as you get older, less hydrochloric acid production, you're going to have less ability to, to utilize that carbonate. Um, uh, okay. Magnesium, it, as you know, everybody's deficient in magnesium. Right. Um, it, magnesium isn't just good for bones. It's good for decreasing inflammation. And what's the problem with a lot of these people and is inflammation. Mm -hmm. um, so we, uh, you know, inflammation, uh, uh, magnesium helps bring down P factor and, and other inflammatory uh, um, molecules. So... I don't know, 400, 500 milligrams magnesium. Uh, make sure they have trace minerals. Trace minerals are so important. We get, you know, uh, so, I mean, in my products, I, I, I put in trace minerals uh, in them. So the minerals are important. Then we, um, so those are the basics, I guess. But then what's really, really important mm -hmm. is that remodeling system. And to do that, what I use is alpha lipoic acid and acetylcysteine. Alpha lipoic acid gets in all the nooks and crannies of your body because it's both fat-soluble and water-soluble. It gets into all those both areas. So it really helps decrease that inflammation. I typically use between 300, 300 and 600 milligrams of that. Um, uh, oftentimes I see that is the one thing that really helps drop NTXs is that the... Um, Lipoic? Yeah. And then berberine I use because berberine seems to, there's been a, a fair amount of studies that show that berberine um, decreases osteoclastic and increases osteoblastic activity. It does both of them, so, which is really cool because there's not many things that do that. There's not many things that, that affect both the osteoblast and the osteoclast. How do you dose um, the berberine? Um, I think I do, what, what do I do, 250 or 300 milligrams, something like that. Um, and I, I, in my product, I do the berberine HCL, but I think there's another form of berberine that's okay. Uh, I use the HCL. Mm -hmm. um, I'm looking at my bottle of osteostim right now, and um, I think I use 250 milligrams. I okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that much. I mean, that's a pretty modest dose of berberine. And you're, and that's that, true, yeah. Okay. Yeah. It, you know, I know for you know for gut issues, you're going to use a heck of a lot more. But right. for berberine, that's what I use, and it seems to work. So, um, you know, you can obviously increase any of these um, am amounts. Uh, you know, I wouldn't like on the NAC. I guess I wouldn't go too much higher than fifteen hundred. But I I just use uh, five or six hundred on the NAC. Mm -hmm. um, now for like pork acid, I guess I wouldn't do more than the six, 600, but I use between three and 500 of alpha-lipoic acid. Um, taurine is really good for, for um, uh, stimulating the osteoblast. Um, I use milk-basic protein, which has been shown to improve osteoblastic activity. Um, um, green tea, everybody knows that that's real good for decreasing uh, pro-inflammatory cytokines and, and decreasing osteoclastic activity. So, so I have a product. I used to, I used to give people ten bottles of all this stuff, and then I thought, well, this is crazy, you know. And so that's why I stuck it all in my OsteoStim product. Okay. And uh, this makes everybody's life a lot easier. Yeah. That's and 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 if and if I had one thing to give my patients, it would be my OsteoStim product because that has all the all the balancing the remodeling process factors. I have, I would have them eat better. I'd have them decrease inflammatory issues that they're doing, i.e. fix their gut. Um, and I would have them take osteostim. I would have them do that way before I would have them take calcium, magnesium, and everything else. Because if they eat a really good diet, I'm hoping they're going to get the uh, 
minerals they're going to want. I'm going to, hopefully they're going to get outside and exercise and get some sun in them. They're going to get their vitamin K for for um, from their vegetables. But what they're not going to get is is the whole package as far as remodeling that. Right, uh, the lipoic acid and yeah. yeah. Any so, issue with milk basic protein in sensitive individuals? I imagine you'd just avoid it in those folks yeah, who have allergy. No, but. well, great question. I don't know. I've had. I always tell people, I don't think you're going to have a problem with it. I mean, mm-hmm. it's not whey. It's not um, casein. It's not lactose. Right. So uh, it's in more immunoglobulins. So um, I don't think they're going to have a problem. So actually, and you haven't I tell seen people it. Is, and I haven't seen it, so I say, try it. If you, I mean, if you're really, 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 really sensitive to milk, then don't. Right. But if, if you have a milk sensitivity, try it. And if you if you if you have a problem, I'll just give you your money back. And I don't think I've given anybody's money back. Okay. Um, you know, so I don't. You know, I mean, like I said, if they really have are really extremely sensitive to milk, then I would say don't take it. Right. But otherwise, I just I don't think it's going to be an issue. What other, any other nutrients? And then I want to just move on to some diet pearls. Um, well, boron's really good for, for mm-hmm. uh, stimulating the estrogen. And you really want estrogen production to be optimal. So adrenal gland, address the adrenal glands. Because when a person goes through menopause, they, uh, uh, you know, who's going to take up the, the slack for, for estrogen? That's fat cells. And yeah. your adrenal, and uh, so many of these osteoporotic women just don't have any fat cells on them. So I try to beef them up. I, I, uh, you know, make sure they're eating well. Um, I do things like have them take um, uh, um, um, fat from uh, what's the um, the triglyceride the. Um, the EPA and DHA is a... No, no from coconut oil. Oh, coconut oil. Um, okay, the medium yeah. chains? Yeah, the medium chain. In fact, I mm-hmm. have to take that. I, I think of that as like this rocket fuel, you know, for people. And, and I mean, I know it's good used for weight loss, but for really thin people, I think it's good for weight gain. Uh, so I have them take that. And I just have them trying to eat as much as they can. If we can gain five pounds on, on a person that's 100 pounds and five foot six, I want to do it, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, get a little bit of meat on them, a little bit of fat on them, and, uh, and then address their adrenals, you know. Mm-hmm. Make sure that they're not in the tank on that. Um, so, in, in protein? Um, you know, 60, 70 uh, grams a day. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. You know, I think, I do think that's really important is for another reason, in that so many people have read that Protein is bad for osteoporosis. So you, I have people coming in and say, you know, I read that the more protein you eat, the, the worse your osteoporosis gets. And so they're, they're way down at 40 grams of protein or something. Mm. You know, they're, they're not eating, they're, they're, they're avoiding protein. Wow. And protein is going to, it, protein is the basis for bone. Right. You know, with collagen. So, so that, if you don't have the protein in there, you're not going to have bone. So... Uh, and and the more muscles you have, the more um, active muscles you have, the more myokines you're going to produce, and myokines stimulate the osteoblast to form bone. So it, um, you need to have good muscle tone uh, and really healthy uh, protein intake. I mean, you know, and that's not red meat, uh, which is. You know, you don't want to do really acidic stuff, but, you know, uh, okay. my, even my, in my vegetarians, you know, you can get a lot of good protein from rice, hemp, and pea protein, you know. So, mm-hmm. um, okay. Listen, I know we, 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 we're coming to the end of it. Um, what about strontium? Uh, I think strontium has only been shown to improve bone density. It, it, I shouldn't say improve bone density. It will improve bone density on pretty much everybody. But does it decrease fracture risk? That's the major question. And it's really only been shown to decrease fracture risk in 80-year-olds. So to, to me, to take a 60-year-old uh, and, and put them on strontium, I don't think we should do it. Because what we're doing, and most of the time, if 
you know, there's there's times when I put people on strontium. I'm not against strontium. I'm just I just use it when I think uh, it, it has the best chance of of, of helping out. Um, I would much rather put a person on a bisphosphonate for one year than and and really try and make sure that they're getting the calcium that they need than to than to uh, allow a person to have a high antilopeptide, have a 60 or so for, for a bone resorption marker, and put them on strontium and uh, have a false increase in bone density two years later because, you know, that strontium molecule is twice as dense as the calcium, so it will look as though we have higher density, but we actually probably have the same density, we might even have less density, and we probably have an increased risk for fracture. So you have to be really careful with strontium. Um, like I said, that I'm not against it. I use it sometimes, but I really look at that person and, and what our options are with that person. Okay. Uh, I am... Know, like I said, you, you have to really realize that that density is going to come back high, better and, but their their fracture risk may not be lower. Right. So what you're saying is it hasn't been, I, I don't know that it's been confirmed that the fracture risk doesn't change with strontium, right? It just hasn't been demonstrated in a younger population that it actually decreases? It, it has not. Yes, it hasn't been, has not been demonstrated. And, and okay. uh, the, the ones that it has been demonstrated with, that's strontium renolate, you know, that isn't uh, legal here in the United States. So, uh, you know, the, the strontium carbonate, um, citrate, glycinate. You know what, what else is there? There's, there's, the, what forms is citrate? Citrate use? is most common. Citrate, mm-hmm. citrate. Yeah, you know. So I, I don't think there's been any studies that have shown decreased fracture risk with citrate or carbonate. Right? Okay. All right. All right. I got it. Um, any so just in as far as your bisphosphonates, just, what are you um, recommending? Well. Uh, each generation of bisphosphonates has gotten stronger and stronger and more problems. Uh, you have the alendronate, residronate are the two basic ones that came out. Uh, that was phos- For alendronate, that's Fosamax. For residronate, that was Actinel. And they're now at 70 milligrams once a week. Uh, I think they're pretty good. Alendronate's a little bit better than residronate. Mm-hmm. And... Um, you take it once a week. Uh, if a person doesn't have any esophageal issues, then that's what they should stay on. If they have esophageal issues, then they have to go to an infusion. You can get a bandronate, which is Beneva, and that seems like it causes a lot of problems with people as far as muscle aches and pains, joint aches and pains. Uh, so I kind of stay, stay away from Beneva. Mm-hmm. Um, then there's the year-long infusion of zoledronic acid, Reclast, and that is pretty good, but it's a, I, I can't remember exactly, but it's something like a thousand times more potent than Fosamax, and so uh, you really got to make sure that that's what you want them on because you you know if they have a bad reaction to it, then they can be pretty miserable for three months. You know, four right. Months. Uh, if you if the if the person gets irritated, uh, muscle joint pain from Fosamax. Uh, you know, actinel, alendronate, residronate. You take them off, and they're they're fine within three weeks. You know, okay. so um, that's why I like the less potent ones. Yeah. Uh, the uh, you're not going to get in trouble with osteonecrosis of the jaw or anything like that if you uh, if you do a year or so, even two years of these things. It's when you get to three years and four years and five years of using these drugs. That's crazy. That's going to lead. That can lead to problems. Okay. Um, uh, okay, then we have CIRMs, the selective estrogen receptor modulators. Um, I think those are totally crazy because they do improve density. They do maybe decrease uh, spine fractures. They don't really haven't been shown uh, to decrease hip fractures, and they're less effective. So, And they increase the risk of uh, thromboembolisms uh, quite actually a high rate, I think. So why would you use that over a bisphosphonate? I'm not sure. So I I don't recommend CIRMs. 
Um, and if you can do that, then just use estrogen, you know, low dose or ultra low dose estrogen, which definitely helps bone density. Right. I mean, I wouldn't start an estrogen on somebody who's five to seven years past menopause, but if they're, you know, if they're three past, three years, five years past menopause, it's, 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 I think it's a good choice to do an estrogen with somebody, low dose estrogen, especially if their estrogen level is, estradiol levels of five picograms per ml or, or, or something like that. If there are 15 micrograms for ML, I wouldn't do an estrogen. I know I'm going a little faster, but <laughs> I'm trying to wrap it up on the uh, on the medications. Um, then you have uh, the Rankle inhibitor, uh, which is a new, it's called Prolia, and um, uh, I don't recommend that either because it's once you're on it, you have to kind of stay on it. Uh, there's a rebound effect when you get off of it. Uh, so if a person gets off of it after a year, their their bone density goes back to where it was, if not worse. So to me, it's a great drug for the drug companies because once you're on it, you really stuck on it, and the drug companies will like that. Uh, Do you? It's called Prolia. Prolia. Uh, go ahead. And and then Forteo. I know you like you mentioned. Uh, Forteo is great. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, but you know, there's a two-year black box warning on it. Uh, you wouldn't want to take it after, uh, you can't take it after two years because it causes osteosarcomas in rats that, when they, you know, during the testing phase. But it, it's the only thing out there that builds bone. The only thing is it loses its effectiveness after about 18 months. So, I, you know, it's a daily injection. So I think people should probably just take it for 18 months or so. But, you know, two, two years is what is typical. Um, a lot of times a person will, will gain seven, eight, nine percent of bone density the first year and only two or three uh, percent increase in density in the second year, it really peters out towards the end. So, okay. you know, 18 months is great, and then you have to back it up with a bisphosphonate because you not only stimulate osteoblastic activity, but you stimulate osteoclastic activity with, with Forteo, and those osteoclasts are like a, a uh, riled up hornet's nest, and you have to kill them off to succeed in, in, benef- in maintaining the benefits from Forteo okay. after you're done using it. Can so, you use any, so you transition them over to a bisphosphonate and you go for the oral ones if possible, and do, are there yep. any supportive nutrients that might help them tolerate? I mean, would you use DGL or, you know, anything to kind of reduce the potential for mm-hmm. esophageal irritation that you're aware of? I don't know that. Um, I think it's pretty caustic stuff. Yeah, I know. So, I'm not sure you'd be able to. Okay. All right. All right. I just thought um, I'd throw it out. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's a, a new one out on the block, Odanicatib, which is the Capsum K inhibitor. Um, I, I'm not, I, and I, it's either coming out this year or it is out. I'm not sure. But that's, and that's about it. That's, that's uh, for the drugs. <laughs> um, you know, that's, that's about all we got. Uh this has been an amazing podcast, just a really amazing ride, and I am certain folks listening to this will, um, you know, be influenced by your expertise and have some good Monday morning take-homes. I, again, Keith, I really appreciate you being here, and um, your next Ironman is when? Well, I just finished one four days ago, and then I qualified for the World Championships in Hawaii. So Woohoo! October 10th, <laughs> so I got go there for the world. That's great. Well, congratulations, and, and good luck Thanks. to you. Thanks, Kim. You're welcome. Great to talk to you. Okay.